the last of these uh, little sections on the chart, and the title is The Promise of a Blessing to the Nations. We're tracing out these themes um, throughout Scripture. The idea, again, is that we understand that the Bible not only is uh, made up of a bunch of different books by a bunch of different authors written over a long period of time, but also that it, it comes together as one complete story. And it makes a story, and that is a, a really great apologetic for the uh, divine inspiration of Scripture. So we've looked at a people who know God, a place of blessing, a king and a kingdom, and today is a blessing to the nations. You can trace these themes from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and they hold the Bible together um, and make a story. So, somebody just go ahead and take a guess as to where we're going to start. Genesis chapter 1, with the topic of creation. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and have them out. We're going to be working all the way through them again today. So, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. Somebody read verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay. This verse is God's purpose for humanity on the earth. When He created Adam and Eve, He gave them work to do. And that was be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth. Take over the earth. That's the idea. That's God's purpose for humanity. Multiplication, dispersion, which will eventually lead to diversity. Now, if you go to Genesis chapter 10, and somebody, you can, we can flip, go ahead and flip over there. We're kind of actually kind of work backwards a little bit. But Genesis chapter 10, um, somebody read Genesis 10 32. Okay, you read that, that verse, Genesis 10, it's interesting if you know what's coming up, because in Genesis 10, there are already nations, genealogies, you can look back up at verse 31, it says their clans, their languages, in verse 31, which we know that the languages, diversity of languages, came after the Tower of Babel. So, the idea that is generally understood is that chapter 10 talks about what came after the Tower of Babel. Like these things were happening and the generations were spreading and the fruit after the Tower of Babel was different languages, different people groups. And this is the diversity of the nations that God had planned. Now, the first thing you think of when you hear that is no way that wasn't part of God's plan because the only reason we have diversity of languages and nations is because of the fall um, and, I, and I think once you work through Scripture, you find out that, that or I'm going to show you these, these two different themes. Um, basically, God uses the sin of us to accomplish His purpose. The sin of mankind to accomplish His purpose. So keep that in mind. So from Genesis 1 to Genesis 10, even though the fall has already happened, people are multiplying, subduing the earth, filling the earth. There's nations, clans, languages, and all that stuff. Now, 
That's creation. Now, if we we're kind of backtracking and go back to chapter 11, and we're going to talk about the fall or a fruit of the fall is what happens in chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. The effect of the fall that leads to the scattering. So Genesis 10 showed the nations that God intended, but Genesis 11 shows that the people have come together in opposition to God. You follow me? God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And what did they do in chapter 11? They came together. They did not fill the earth. They came back together. Not only is that disobedience, but they also said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower, make a name for ourselves. Um, so somebody read Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Okay, so the people come together rather than dispersing. They come together in opposition to God. These nations that, that uh, are a part of God's purposes should be a part of God's purposes are also opposed to God's purposes because there is diversity, but at the same time they're working against the purposes of God. Now, just a few questions. Why did the people build the tower? We've already said it. To make a name for themselves. Okay, and why did the Lord stop them? They were in rebellion. He said if they keep working like this, nothing will be impossible for them. They're just going to keep on getting worse and worse. Okay. What was the outcome? Many languages. Many languages. Dispersion. Dispersion scattered all over the earth. Okay. Now, how does that compare with God's command to increase in number and fill the earth? Or multiply and fill the earth? He did it. They said, in, 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 in essence, they said, we're not going to do that. God said, oh yes, you will. Go. You will fill the earth. So, um, they wanted to make a name for themselves. God scatters them. The city and the tower, which we, we mostly just talk about the tower of Babel, but it was actually this city um, that kind of stands as a symbol of human beings, the people, in opposition to God. By the book of Revelation, you see the, the word Babylon. That is just a, 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 another way of saying Babel. It's this idea of the people of the earth, the systems of the world, in opposition to God. In, in Revelation, it's not a literal place. The place of Babylon doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's figurative of the people of the earth who are in opposition to God. So the result of 
man's sin and God's judgment on their sin is what God told them to do anyway was multiply, fill the earth. There's ethnic difference, there's languages, ethnic identity. So what happens from the Tower of Babel, which is a fruit of the fall, they sin. What happens is not only the fulfillment of God's purposes, but also judgment on the people. They both happen together. And, and you see this, I mean, all throughout Scripture. Because God is sovereign in all things, He will bring judgment while at the same time bringing about His own purposes. Um, so there are two purposes. God's judgment and His fulfillment of His own commands that happen together. Keep that in mind because that kind of will come back later. So that's creation and then fall. People are scattered. The third place we're going to go, somebody tell me where we're going. Abraham. Creation, fall, Abraham. Remember these points in Scripture. Okay, so turn to Genesis chapter uh, 12. Some of you are already there. Genesis 12, uh, 3. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Um, he comes back in Genesis 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All nations on earth will be blessed through him. Genesis 17, his name is changed from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means, huh? That's what I hear. Father of nations, father of many nations, Abraham, father of many nations. So the changing of his name is kind of symbolic of what's actually happening within this, this blessing and this covenant with Abraham. So, he comes to Abraham and he says, leave your father's house, your kindred. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And it seems like what God is doing, and we actually say this and we agree, it seems like what God is doing is calling Abraham out of the nations and saying, you're going to be a nation for me. And it seems like an exclusion of everybody else and Abraham. But... What's happening, again, is there are two things. Right from the very beginning, God says, you, whom I've called out of the world, will be a blessing back to the nations. So there's already a prophecy and promise to the nations. And this is so important to the way we understand the Old Testament. Because a lot of people, um, especially um, if, you, if you hold to a dispensational view of Scripture and history... The Old Testament has almost nothing to do with us. That's the Jews. We are Christians. They're completely different groups. And even in heaven, there will be a place for Jewish people and a place for Christians. They keep them separate. And we've talked before about the idea that some people accuse uh, Reformed Christians of replacement theology, saying the church has come in and knocked Israel out of God's uh, choosing, God's plan, that's also not what we believe. We believe that from the very beginning, God chose a people. Working through an ethnic group, yes, but within that ethnic group, there was a spiritual seed that always traced out. Okay, um, Esau was not a part of the church, but he was descended from Abraham. So you've got to keep those things in mind and... and, and Again, the point is that even from the very beginning, God's plan is already pointing to the nations. And I've said this before, and, I, and I, I think this is something that we have to keep in mind. God's plan has never only included 
Jewish people. Ever. It's never been about just the Jews. Some people say it was about the Jews and then it shifted. I say it's never been exclusively only about the Jews because here from the very beginning with Abraham, first of all, Abraham's not a Jew. He comes from Ur of the Chaldeans. He's just a man that God chose. And later from him, the, the people come. Second of all, from the very beginning, Abraham is going to be a blessing to the nations. We read later in the New Testament, he was chosen justified by faith before circumcision so that he would be the father of all those who believe apart from circumcision. That's Gentile. So in Abraham, there are these two different lines, these, these seeds uh, that come from him and we trace throughout Scripture. So keep that in mind. So even from the beginning of Abraham's call, there's this promise of a blessing to the nations. In Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 8 and then verse 29 says, The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. That's what we would call the nations in the Old Testament. By faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, quote, all nations will be blessed through you. And in verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. For me, to hold to a dispensational separation of Israel and church means you have to exclude Galatians. You have to exclude Ephesians 2. You have to exclude Romans 9-11. You just have to not read them or, or play games with them to make them fit your, uh, your presupposition. So there, even Paul says, um, the gospel was proclaimed. Quote, all nations will be blessed through you. The good news of the gospel is that all nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. And that promise was Paul's mandate for mission. That's why he went to the nations and didn't just stay for the Jewish people. So that's Abraham. Okay, then we move to Israel. Drawing the nations to the rule of God. Again, within Israel, as God works through the ethnic group called Israel, there are two themes for these people. And we could, it, we could be a little more vague if you want to and say, with the people of God, God has two themes that He's working through. The first one is that they are to be a light to the nations. Alright, let's turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Keep that in mind. So there we see the purpose of God for Israel. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. Okay, now, here's another question. Um, what do priests do? What is their, the, if you could sum everything that a priest does up in their job description, what is it that a priest does? They intercede between God and man. They, in other words, or you could say a priest represents the people before God, whereas a prophet represents God before the people. So a priest represents 
the people before God. If we're going to be a, or if he says you're going to be a kingdom of priests, the idea there is that Israel is going to be the force by which the all of the nations are drawn to God, represented to God. That's why they're a light to the nations. Um, now turn to Deuteronomy. And I'm going to try to unpack this a little bit more. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verses 5 and 6. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The idea is that the Jews, when they go into the promised land, they're going to be obedient. And all of the other nations will see their obedience, see their wisdom, see how God has spoken to them, and they will be drawn to God. That's the purpose. A light to the nations. They're called out, separated out, act a certain way. The people will look at you and be drawn to God. That's their first purpose, is to, is to be a light to the nations, to draw people to God. Um, and then in Deuteronomy 10, verse 19, you are to love those who are aliens, for you or yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Again, the original people who escaped from Egypt, we usually just think of the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel. The original people who left Egypt were far from being racially homogenous. They were not just one family. They took Egyptians with them. They were to welcome foreigners in if they would take the, the, the sign of circumcision and be introduced into the family. So it was, it's never been just about Jewish people. So they're a light to the nations, but also they, are, they, they have to watch out uh, from a threat from the nations. That's the second thing that uh, this little theme here is a threat from the nations. Um, the nations and their gods are seen as a threat to the people of God. So in Joshua, which is after the book of Deuteronomy, they go into the promised land. And does somebody know the, the phrase that is used to describe what the, Joshua's armies are supposed to do to the people's you may know what, that, what it says several times. Devote to destruction. That's what they're supposed to do. Every time you go into a place, devote them to destruction. Everything. Wipe them out. Don't leave anything. And you know the story of the, the sin of Achan when he keeps some of the spoils and his whole family is uh, stoned because they were supposed to de de devote everything to destruction. Now when they go into these places and they do this, that, that served two purposes. One, it was the judgment of God on those nations. Some people, um, when they talk about uh, an apologetic for God, or they're arguing against the existence of God, they say, uh, if God is so good, why is there evil? But those same people will turn around and say, there's no way I can believe in, a God, in the God of the Old Testament. Why? Because He killed so many people. What He was doing was dealing with evil. He was that was judgment on those wicked nations. 
He was dealing with evil then. People don't like that. Now there's evil and people don't like him for not doing away with it. So that's what he's doing. One is he's, he's um, bringing judgment on those rebellious peoples. The second thing he's doing is keeping Israel separated from them. But if he can, if he can wipe out all those peoples when they go in, Israel doesn't have to worry about idolatry and all these false gods and, and pagan worship being introduced into the community. Um, but of course, they don't listen. That, that's the book of Joshua. Flip over to Judges. Judges chapter uh, 2. And this is kind of a big chunk. I'll read this one. Judges chapter 2 beginning in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But... Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have trans or this yeah, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations of the, that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. So there, we find out that they didn't obey. They would not keep themselves separate from the nations. They were supposed to be separate. God was destroying the nations so that they would be separate. They would not um, abstain from idol worship. And so, he says, fine, I'll just leave the nations there as a test, just to see if you'll go after them, knowing that they would, and to teach them war. And that's the general idea there is, I'm going to leave them to test you, to see if you will fall into idolatry. And of course, they fail. So what we, what we see there is, and, and in these, <clears throat> these two themes, there will be a light to the nations and they have to watch out from uh, the threat from the nations. When they disobey, we find out God's people, and this is a, a, a theme that carries on all the way to now, God's people will either be a light to the nations, or they will be corrupted by the nations. There is no middle ground. There's, there's no way to say, um, we're just going to not pick a sign on this, or, or I'm going to blend in with the nations while still being a light to the nations. It will not work. You're either a light to the nations, or you are threatened by the nations. You will stand out and draw the nations to God, or you will, be, you will blend in and be absorbed into the nations. Now, what happened to the children of Israel? They blended in and they were absorbed. And what do we call that? Next, next section. 
decline into exile. They were rebellious, they didn't obey, and so there's the decline into exile. They were drawn into the ways of the nations. When Solomon was king, he was so wise, other leaders from around the world came to see him. But he also uh, married women from foreign nations and was uh, drawn to the, the false worship of other gods. And so he kind of begins this decline into the exile. Um, somebody turn to 2 Kings, or everybody turn to 2 Kings chapter 21. And read uh, verse 9. Yeah, read verse 9 of 2 Kings 21. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So, there, not only had they rebelled and began acting like the nations, but by the, the, the reign of Manasseh, who was the 14th king after Solomon, they're doing more evil. They are actually worse than the pagan nations. They do more evil than the nations. And so because of that, they are judged by those same nations and they are drawn into exile. And these different countries come in, these nations come in and attack them and, and take them away and take their stuff and, and ultimately destroy uh, Jerusalem, the temple, and haul all the people away into exile. And that was judgment. God brought judgment on them because of their rebellion. Now, that brings us to the next section, which is prophecy. After they're drawn into exile, then the prophets come and begin to prophesy that judgment and salvation will come not just to Israel, but to the nations. This is all part of God's plan. He's got His people within the nations or they're kind of being drawn into the nations. And then as the prophets come, judgment and salvation will come to the nations. First, judgment to the nations. Um, turn to the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 25. We're going to read chapters 25 through 32. Just kidding. We're just going to look at chapters 25 to 32. Now what happens um, when, when these prophets come Israel's been taken into exile by the nations who are not God's people. Those nations, when you read through Scripture, you find out God used those nations to go in and bring judgment on His people. He uses them like, you know, like His own tools to do what He wants to do with them and then comes back later and judges them for what they did because they acted in rebellion. They were sinful. He uses them and then judges them. So... We can't misunderstand Israel's downfall. See, the nations might have thought, Israel's lost. We've won. Their God is no God at all. Our God reigns. We win. We are supreme. Their God is nothing. When you read 
through the, the book of Ezekiel, you find out that the Lord in this prophecy is letting these peoples know that, no, you're not separate. I'm God over you as well. So, um, if you look at just the headings, like in my Bible, and beginning in chapter 25, it says prophecy against Ammon, uh, prophecy against Moab and Seir, prophecy against Edom, prophecy against Philistia, prophecy against Tyre, lament for Tyre. See, this is prophecies spoken to the nations who have been against Israel. So, uh, 25... Uh, chapter 25, verse 7. Behold, I have stretched out my hand against you, and I will hand you over as plunder to the nations, and I will cut you off from the peoples, and will make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then, then you will know that I am the Lord. That's what he's saying. That's the purpose. Um, if you look down at verse 11, I will execute judgments on Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Verse 14, And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom in the hand, by the hand of my people Israel, and they, will, and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord. They're going to know again. They'll know the Lord. Um, verse 17, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Uh, you can look at chapter 26, verse 6. Last sentence, Then they will know that I am the Lord. Over and over. This is the purpose. Um, we can go all the way through chapter uh, 30. Verse 26. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 32, verse 15. This is uh, lament Pharaoh in Egypt. Verse 15. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Over and over. This judgment is so that the peoples who are not God's people will know who God is. When I bring this about, you will know I am the Lord. Don't get the idea that because you were used as my pawn to judge my people, that you are above me or more powerful than me. I am the Lord. I am your God. So, that's the idea. There's the first thing. The second thing, as he says, uh, the, the heading here is, Do not delight in Israel's downfall. Israel's fate will be your fate. Again, we can go back to chapter 26 and we see that over and over. Um, verse 3, I will bring up many nations against you. They will destroy the walls of Tyre. Verse 4, um, chapter 28, verse 22. And thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her. I mean, this happens over and over when you read the book of Ezekiel. God's saying, you will know that I am the Lord and I'm going to judge you. You're going to get the same thing Israel got. He used them as judgment on Israel. Then He comes back and says, because you've done this, you're going to get the same thing. Because they acted sinfully. Um, the way we would explain that is, God is sovereign, man is responsible, and they just are. It's truth. Um, so during the prophecy, times of prophecy, the nations will be judged, but also there are prophecies of salvation to the nations. Turn to the book of Isaiah. And we're blazing through this today because I want to try to I want to do something at the end. Just as a little surprise. Where is Isaiah? It's backwards. Isaiah chapter 11.
verses 10 through 16. In that day, the root of Jesse. You know who Jesse was? David's dad. Father of King David. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, so it's a person, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. So there's a prophecy that, that mentions nations a few times. Um, flip over to chapter 19 of Isaiah. Beginning in verse 18, it says, In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing And they will return to the Lord and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt and Assyria and the Egyptians and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, Assyria the work of my hands and Israel my inheritance. Again, these nations that were not Israel, will come together and they will worship God. That's the prophecy here, that salvation will come to these people. Um, Turn over to Zechariah. We're getting closer to the New Testament. Zechariah chapter 2. Love hearing those pages turn. Zechariah chapter 2. Verse 11 says, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Many nations will come to the Lord. That's the prophecy which... You can kind of see why a lot of these prophets were killed and tortured and persecuted because they come not only with judgment on Israel, but also saying, oh, and by the way, all the Gentile nations are going to be gathered in too. So that's prophecy. 
judgment and salvation are going to come to these nations. Then the number seven, I guess, if you've got the headings on the chart, is Jesus. The hope of the nation. This is short because this is usually what we know the most about uh, when it comes to this idea of nations. And Jesus, again, is the hermeneutical key. All of the Bible centers around Jesus. Um, John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Um, somebody turn to chapter uh, Mark and read Mark 13, 27. So there you go again. Jesus, this is talking about the coming of the Son of Man. At the end time, it will gather His elect from the four winds. Four is the number of the earth. You hear the four corners of the earth. Um, that's the number of the earth of the world. So Jesus, of course, comes and He says, I'm going to gather My people. He is the one who fulfills Israel's calling to make God known to the nations. Now we've talked about this. During Jesus' earthly ministry... Israel has priority. We've seen that, didn't we? Do not go to the places of the Gentiles and to any town of the Samaritans, but go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We've seen this. During his earthly ministry, his focus was Israelites, the Jewish people. They had priority, but as the nation and its leaders reject him, so Israel loses its priority status. Now the gospel goes to all those who will accept it, whether Jew or Gentile. Remember we talked about Ephesians 2 says he's uh, in his body he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility, joining, making one new man out of Jew and Gentile. Um, he speaks in John, he says, uh, when I am lifted up, speaking of the crucifixion, when I am on the cross lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, not just Jews anymore, but Israel or, or people from all nations. So as Jesus comes, that's the moment his earthly ministry happens, and, and if, you're, if you're thinking of a timeline that consists of Old Testament and New Testament, or Old Covenant, New Covenant, remember Jesus says, this is the New Covenant in my blood. When His blood is shed on the cross, that's when the New Covenant is initiated. That's when it starts. There's, there has to be bloodshed for the covenant to start. Now that does work retroactively and redeem Old Testament saints, but up until that point, it's still... If we can think this way, Old Testament. We're, if we can move the Old Testament uh, label in our Bibles, that empty page that says Old Testament, if we can move that over to like right before Jesus dies on the cross, that would make more sense because that's when the change took place. So as soon as Jesus dies on the cross, what happens in the... In the, uh, in the uh, yeah, the thing's torn. The veil of the, the temple is, is torn. And that, that, that is picturing now the presence of God is opened up for anybody who will come into the temple. So that happens as Jesus comes. He's the hermeneutical key. Everything in Scripture is leading up to that point. Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to the nations through your seed. Jesus comes as the seed of Abraham who breaks down that wall and people are joined, blessing to the nations. Okay, uh, The eighth heading is the church, the gospel. To the nations. Again, this is simple because we've been talking about this for several weeks. Um, 
And this is where we are now. And on the chart, if you're thinking about a, a redemptive historical timeline, this is where we are because we are in the church age, as it is called. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, what's it say? God so love the world. <laughs> Good. Matthew 8, 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the age. Okay. Great commission. Go to the nations. What's, what's the Greek phrase? All of the uh, nations, make disciples of all nations, all of the nations, people groups, yeah. Panta, ta, ethne, remember that, all of the peoples. It's not just countries, not just borders, it's people groups. Acts 1.8, somebody say that one. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You move in all witnesses, Jerusalem, the end of Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Yep, mom got it. I guess I'll accept a King James version of that verse. I still say lo when I uh, quote the Great Commission. And lo, I'm with you all the way. Um, so, let's talk about Pentecost. This is usually what we, what we talk about, the, the moment that uh, sparks the New Testament church at Pentecost. Um, so, so tell me what happened at Pentecost. Describe that event. Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Got it. I don't think that was the King James version of it, but um, but that's it. That's See, a lot of people, it's, it's really funny what people focus on when they read Bible stories. We talk about Pentecost, like, oh wow, tongues of fire. It's tongues of fire. We're going to have the tongues of fire. And everybody's looking for the tongues of fire. And everybody forgets that people from all over the world were there. That's really, really important because that's a part of this, uh, the, the key plan. They were in Jerusalem. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then later, Judea and Samaria, the ends of the earth. So the book of Acts is the story of how the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and ultimately to Rome at the center of the known world. The book of Acts is not a book that tells us how to have church. The book of Acts is a story of how the Holy Spirit used the apostles to spread the gospel and the church grew. Okay? Now, again, within the church age, turn to 1 Peter. Chapter 2. I don't think mine has a 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, when somebody finds that, they can read verses, uh, or just verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a 
people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. Okay. Exodus 19. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Almost verbatim, same thing that Peter says in the New Testament. Now again, dispensational people will say, nah, 1 Peter, that's the Jews. We don't read that one. If we do, we just find out you know, moral principles, but other than that, we, we don't read it. Again, you have to discard a lot of the Bible to come to that conclusion. Um, so the idea here is that this is the fulfillment. The New Testament church is the fulfillment of what he said in Exodus. Holy nation, royal priesthood, chosen possession. It hasn't changed. It's always been those who believe and trust in God by faith. So that is how the church, uh, as the people of God, take the gospel to the world. But again, or, or we could say are a light to the nations. But again, just like in the Old Testament, we have to be beware of a, the threat of the nations or the threat of the world around us. And we're, we're talking about this in, in our sermon today, and we have been uh, for a little bit. But nothing's changed with, within all of redemptive history as far as this is concerned. Not only do we take the gospel to the world, but we are often warned of being corrupted by the influence of the world. We can't let sin in. We can't just blend in. So that's why... Uh, John can say, for God to love the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. And then in 1 John 2.15, He can say, do not love the world or anything in the world. Because you have to be in the world, and God loves, and we are there, but at the same time, we're not of the world. We don't love the world. We don't get consumed with the, the world systems and thinkings and things. So we have to be careful of that threat. And we'll talk about that again today in Matthew chapter 10. Um, a lot of people nowadays, especially within uh, popular church culture and evangelicalism, are under the impression that the way that we reach the world is through looking like the world. Uh, typically sort of like a bait and switch kind of thing. Um, a lot of times a switch would be great if there was one, but, but that's the idea. Is we're, we'll look like the world and the things that we do um, when we gather for worship, the way we dress, talk, eat, act, watch, read, will look like the world, but you know, deep down in here we know that something's different and we just want to offer people hope by letting them know that we're cool or we can look like you or we're not weird. That's never been the situation. From the beginning of time, the case has never been blend into the world and the world will see how cool it is. It's always been separated out, called out, distinct, living different, think different, act different, spin different, all of it. And that's going to draw people. Not looking like them, but being separate. We're a light of the world when and only when we're different from the world. That's the church age. Again, nothing's changed. There's nothing new. It's always been this way. Um, just because in the book of Acts, people got together and started selling clothes and eating on Sunday together, that doesn't mean that the purpose of God's mission through His people is any different. We still are separated out um, to draw people to God. 
Okay, so that's the church. And then the last one is the new creation. People from every nation. You go to the book of Revelation for this. Um, first of all, again, judgment to the nations. Revelation 19, verses 11. Uh, I'm just going to read 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now that, to me, is pretty impressive. And it's really funny when people say they like Jesus, they just have a problem with the God of the Old Testament. They like the God on the right side of the Bible, not the left side of the Bible, and their problem is they're not going far enough to the right to find out nothing's changed. He will judge the nations. Um, if we turn to Revelation chapter 14, this is backwards, which you have to do often in the book of Revelation to make it make sense. Uh, Revelation 14, 8. What do we say Babylon represented? The world, a system in opposition to the people of God. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the first reference to Babylon in the book of Revelation, and it says, Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon, the people of the world, the world systems that opposes God and His people, is fallen. They, it will come down. Um, you flip over to chapter 18, verses 2 through 3, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. You just read that, you can tell that's, that's the world. That's what the world is going after. Sexual immorality. Merchants growing rich, luxurious living. Everything that is in opposition to the people of God. In 14, fallen, fallen, Babylon has fallen. Chapter 18, fallen, fallen, Babylon the great. It's fallen. Now, it's cool when you realize this that in the book of Revelation there are um, it's different pictures of the same thing happening the same things so you see a picture of it in 14 from this view and then in chapter 18 you see a picture of it from over here it's kind of like a replay that, that might help you when you read the book of Revelation is it connecting those things um, so judgment will come to the nations 
But then also in the new creation, salvation will come to the nations. Revelation 22.2. We read this a couple weeks ago. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, uh, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the Jews. No, for the healing of the nations. Um, we go backwards again if we want to, or we could just about quote these passages. Hopefully, uh, Revelation uh, five nine and seven nine. Five nine. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them, here's our phrase again, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 7, 9. After this I looked and, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there, again, people from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth were worshiping God in the new creation. Revelation 21 Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk. Verse 26, they will bring glory, bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. See that? This idea of nations all the way through the book of, or into and through the book of Revelation comes back. God told Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Revelation, there are people from every tribe and nation and tongue worshiping God. You see, this is a story. It starts in the beginning, goes all the way through. You follow me? Yeah, how that works? Any questions on that? The idea of nations or, or any of these headings on your little chart? Anything at all? Everybody's got the story of the Bible laid out in their brains. So let's do it. This is what we did in the very first week as we we worked with one another and we just went through the timeline of Scripture. So I'll start it. Creation. Fall. What happens immediately after the fall? Yep, first, first gospel. Genesis 3.15, okay? Promise of, of uh, salvation. Then what? Next big thing? Abraham. Covenant with Abraham. Then... Who? She said. I can barely hear what y'all are saying. Yeah. Brad Abraham. We just said Abraham. Covenant with Abraham. That'll work. Israel. Moses. Huh? Yeah. Israel. People of God. It might help to think of, if you think of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph. Remember, Joseph was in Egypt and then they have to come out of Egypt. So that's the, the Exodus when they go to Sinai. That's when they get the law. And that's when they become the nation of Israel. Okay, and then they 
go to the promised land, but they don't go in, they don't have faith, and so they wander around the wilderness, then they come back. And the book of Deuteronomy is the second law, second giving of the law. They hear the law again. Then they go into the promised land in Joshua. They're supposed to what? Conquer. Conquer for the purpose of what are the two reasons they conquered the nations? Devote them to destruction. God's judgment. And to keep them from false idols. To keep them from uh, idolatry. To keep that system away. Okay, but they do what? They didn't believe. They don't have faith. Now these people got chariots made out of iron. What are we going to do, God? They got chariots made of iron. So they don't, they, they, they're scared. So God says, fine. If you're scared and you won't believe me, fine, I'll just let you go. And so they, they're absorbed. They're, they begin to be defeated. They cry out. And God sends them judges. God's with the judges. You see this repetition over and over where they, they are um, in idolatry and then they cry out to God. They're, they're defeated. They cry out to God. God hears them, gives them a judge. They obey for a little bit. Then they fall back in. They rebel. Over and over and over, judges. Okay. Then First uh, Samuel, um, chapter eight. They say we want a king. They get who? Saul. Saul. He's no good. Starts off good. Sins. Gets kicked out. Who's after Saul? David, who is from the tribe of ben. Judah, who was promised. Uh, in Genesis that the scepter would never depart from Judah. So Judah, or David, is the first fulfillment of the that prophecy. That, that's where the king line will come. So David, then Solomon, then Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and then the kingdom is divided. They keep on going. Um, with Manasseh, remember the 14th generation, they're not only as bad as the nations, but they are worse than the nations. And so they go into exile, but during the exile there's prophecy that what? what what's all the prophecy? Remnant. A remnant will return. The land, be restored. land will be restored. Babylon, huh? Babylon, Babylon will be defeated. I'm sure that's in there somewhere. Ezekiel, Daniel. Blessing will come to the nations. A Savior will be to the nations. Savior's going to come. Then in Matthew, who comes? Jesus comes, and He is... I don't have my chart in front of me. But Jesus is the fulfillment of a people who are close to God because He is God, but He's also in relationship with us because He's man. He is the place where we find blessing and peace and rest, the fulfillment of the place of blessing. He is the King of kings who rules over His kingdom, His people, and He is that blessing through which all of the nations are drawn to God. So Jesus comes, and then we have in Acts chapter 2 the institution of the the church comes. And there's this new people. They are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a royal possession. The gospel goes forth to the nations. And in the new creation, you have a new humanity, new creation, uh, everlasting freedom and rule, people from every nation. That's the Bible. That's the story of the Bible from start to finish. 
it's pretty helpful to learn that. And remember, the point is that when you learn that story, Nehemiah makes a lot more sense. Ruth makes a lot more sense. Jude makes a lot more sense. Apart from the story, they're just letters, books. It's, it's hard to, to fill out you know, what, what's the purpose here. So that's that lesson. Any questions on any of that?